0: good morning i remember when the movie titanic came out i asked my dad if he was going to go see that movie and uh he somewhat comically responded as he is prone to do i already know the ending there's no reason to see it (laughs) said the same thing about pearl harbor but oftentimes i think that's how we approach the week of the passion i think that we approach it with an attitude of yep We know how it ends. Christ was crucified, and then he rose again. As I was preparing for this week, I had this uh, this kind of research question that I was looking at, and that research question was, were the people who were singing Hosanna at the beginning of the week, the same people that were chanting, crucify him at the end? And so we're going to take a look at that this morning, And if you'll keep that in mind as we go through the, the framework of the sermon. So this morning we'll look at the preparation, the presentation, the rejection, and the sacrifice of the king, and then the response to the king. There'll be a lot of scripture and you'll be welcome to fly around. You'll see some of it up on the screen, but this morning we'll start with the preparation of the king. John 11 details what is the capstone miracle in Jesus' earthly ministry, the raising of Lazarus from the dead. This miracle had the effect of firing up the high priests and the Pharisees. It happened, by some accounts, the Wednesday before Passover, so like last Wednesday if we were alive then. And if you want to look with me, it won't be on the screen. John 11, uh, chapter 11, verse 47. Uh, we'll go quick here. Um, but says this. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council. See, this is context for what we're going to talk about this morning. They gathered a council and said, what shall we do? For this man works many signs. If we let him alone like this... Everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and the nation. Then from that day on, they plotted to put him to death. Remember this as we go through this morning. So Jesus withdrew from there, went to a place called Ephraim, uh, withdrew because it wasn't yet time. When it was time, he moved then through Jericho to Bethany and on to Jerusalem. And outside of Jericho, Jesus healed two blind men. This is important, and Timothy Keller points out the significance of it. He says, this is the first time that Jesus was recognized publicly by the Messianic title, Son of David. And it's the first time that he responds to it rather than to quiet it. He's being prepared for his entry into Jerusalem. And so as he leaves Jericho, he stops in Bethany where he had raised Lazarus perhaps just a few days before. And in Lazarus, right outside of Jerusalem, Mary anoints Jesus with oil in preparation for his burial. The next day, Jesus enters into Jerusalem. Interestingly when we talk about Jesus entering Jerusalem you see that, that bottom point there 10th Nisan that is a, a day in the Jewish calendar interestingly Exodus 12:3 says that it is on 10th Nisan that the sacrificial lamb for Passover should be set aside should be set aside from the flock on the 10th of Nisan and then on the 14th of Nisan would be sacrificed for God's people. And interestingly, this is what we see, right? Jesus is set aside as he enters Jerusalem. He's set apart. And then on the 14th, he would be sacrificed for my sins and for yours on the cross in Jerusalem. And so we come to the kind of first text or the main text that we're going to look at as it is Palm Sunday. That's what we're celebrating here. This morning, John 12, 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming into Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Even the king of Israel and Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. And so we have here the presentation of the king. Matthew and Mark tell us that the the people didn't just sing, but they also uh, spread their cloaks and palm leaves on the road. And Luke tells us there were Pharisees in attendance. In fact, the Pharisees said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Jesus answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. See, the presentation of the king is the fulfillment of messianic prophecy. In fact, author Tim LaHaye says this, He says, scholars agree that there are at least 109 distinct prophecies which the Messiah had to fulfill. The probability that just 20 of those prophecies would be fulfilled in one man by chance, 20, just 20 out of 109, by chance, would be one in one quadrillion 125 trillion just 20 of them which is to say that it didn't happen by chance jesus fulfilled those prophecies isaiah 53 i really encourage you to read this chapter this week it is amazing it is a chapter of messianic prophecy We don't have time to go through all of it, but just a a couple quick verses from it, examples. Isaiah 53, 5. He was pierced for our transgressions. This is hundreds of years before. This is before the invention of the cross. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. And verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. There are at least 16 prophecies fulfilled in Isaiah 53. Really fascinating chapter. Again, I really encourage you to take some time uh, this week and to read that chapter. But of course, there were a bunch throughout the Old Testament We have, for example, in Zechariah, that Jesus would come in on a colt, that the king would ride in on a colt. We have also that he would be be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. I mean, how accurate is that? Exactly the price that Judas was paid to betray our Lord. 30 pieces of silver, which would then be thrown into the temple and then gathered and given to the potter which we know was also fulfilled, right? Judas buried, or as he fell, was in a place called the potter's field. And the money that was thrown into the temple was used to purchase that. The Psalms are intensely messianic, but Psalm 22 in particular, uh, incredibly messianic Psalm. Uh, You see on the, the screen, Psalm 22 says that the king would be forsaken by God. You remember Christ's words on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Scorned and mocked, again pierced hands and feet, hundreds of years before the cross as a method of execution was even created. That his bones would not be broken, even that they would gamble for his clothing. And then perhaps uh, one that I found extremely interesting was a prophecy in Daniel. In Daniel 9 verses 24 to 27, it predicts the literal day that the king would re-enter Jerusalem. Scholarship indicates that in fact, they, that Daniel's prediction was 10th Nisan as Jesus entered into Jerusalem on that Palm Sunday. See, as Jesus entered Jerusalem, nobody doubted that he was the Messiah. Nobody doubted that. The people believed him. We know that the disciples believed it. The people, for the time being, believed it. Even the Jewish leadership worried about it. Right? That's why they were worried that Rome might come and take away their place. And so we come this morning to the rejection of the king. The Sanhedrin ultimately, the Jewish authority, ultimately condemned Jesus with a trumped-up charge of blasphemy. Before we get to that charge, I'd like just to share uh, a story with you from Matthew 21, and you're welcome to turn there. And Jesus came into Jerusalem uh, after, after the after what we celebrate here on Palm Sunday, he came into Jerusalem and he began to cleanse the temple for a second time, kicked out the money changers and began to heal the the blind and the lame. And when the chief priests and scribes saw this, it says in verse 15, as the children were crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And so then the next day Jesus returns to the temple and immediately the priests and the elders confront him. And Jesus responds to that confrontation with three parables. The third of which I think is especially interesting found in Matthew 21 verse 33. And it's the parable of the tenants. And here's how this parable basically goes in Matthew 21. There's an owner of a vineyard and he... um, He had lent the the vineyard out to people and he sent his servants to those tenants to get his fruit. But the tenants killed the servants. These are the prophets of old. And then he sends his son. And the tenants decide to kill the son and take his inheritance. Then Jesus asked the, the priests that were in attendance, the Pharisees that were there, what would the owners do to the tenants? And we see their answer in verse 41. He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give them the fruits in their seasons. And Jesus responded in verse 42. If you're following along, catch this. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. You recognize here that Jesus is talking about the gospel going out among the Gentiles. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, Jesus continues. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The priests and Pharisees recognized what Jesus was talking about. And you see that in verse 45. They perceived he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds. And so the Pharisees and Sadducees begin to try and trap Jesus. You remember this. You remember, uh, for example, they asked Jesus, uh, was it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? And so we see those tests. After that series of tests, Jesus pronounced seven woes on the scribes and the Pharisees. You see, there was no middle ground for the Jewish authority. He presents them with a choice. Either they had to repent of their false teaching in their hardened hearts Or else further, harden their hearts and label Jesus a blasphemer. And we see that charge in Matthew 26, beginning in verse 63, when Jesus was on trial on Thursday night. The high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the son of God. And Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? And they answered, He deserves death. The problem is that would never have stuck before Pilate. And so they go to Pilate and they, they pressure him with charges of sedition for trying to start a rebellion as king by claiming that he was king. But as you know, Pilate didn't find Jesus guilty of any of those charges. But he had had a lot of problems since he'd taken over the Roman province of Judea. And so in the end, fearful of a riot, Pilate gave in to the Jews. But see, it wasn't just the authority of Israel that rejected Jesus. It was also the people. This unbelief stems from their desire for Jesus, as Sam mentioned earlier, to be an earthly Messiah that would free them from Rome and see to their earthly needs. In fact, after Jesus fed the 5,000, we first see this in John 6. And you remember that story, right? Jesus fed this large multitude of people, John 6. The people tried to make him king. And you know the rest of the story. Jesus leaves, uh, walks on water to meet the disciples, ends up in Capernaum, and then the people find him there. And this is what Jesus says to them. I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. You see, the people were after an earthly Messiah that would fulfill physical rather than spiritual needs. And we see this in their response as Jesus entered into Jerusalem. They spread their garments on the road, which is an ancient custom, which signified respect and submission for a king. They used palm branches, which throughout scripture symbolized salvation and God's provision. And they sang to Jesus, Hosanna to the son of David. The word Hosanna, and this is very important, the word Hosanna means save now. See, that's what they wanted, save now. Save us from Rome They use the title, as we mentioned earlier, the Son of David is a Messianic title for Jesus, for the King, for the Messiah. They use that title. John MacArthur points out this. He says, what better time for the Messiah to come than Passover, which celebrated the deliverance of Israel from Egypt? What better time? And so they sang the Hosanna Chorus And this Hosanna Chorus, as Sam pointed out earlier, comes from Psalm 118. It is an intensely messianic psalm and it is part of what we call the Egyptian Halal. And it is sung during the Feast of Tabernacles and Passover. In fact, it's the middle chapter, right in the middle of the Bible. I was informed by Dennis Meter after first service, right smack dab in the middle. Interestingly, I'll share with you a verse that's the middle verse, which is kind of fascinating. Not weird, just fascinating. But significantly, Psalm 118 is known as the Psalm of Deliverance. And during the Maccabees' revolt of 200 years before, the Jews hailed another with this very same psalm. Simon Maccabee, the revolt leader, As he entered into Jerusalem, in this revolt, was met with choruses of Hosanna to the son of David. You see, they sought a worldly deliverance. Like their deliverance from Egypt and like the Maccabees' revolt against the Syrians, the Jews of Jerusalem believed the Messiah would overthrow Rome. If you look at Psalm 118.8, you're welcome to turn there. But just really quick, 118 verse 8 says this. This is interesting. They should have listened. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. Unfortunately, they were trusting in men. Later in John 12, verses 27 to 37. And so we see this is after Jesus has come to Jerusalem The people again demonstrate a desire for a worldly king than a need for a savior. In verse 32 of this passage, Jesus tells them, tells the crowd that he will be crucified. And in verse 34, the crowd answers. They say, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the son of man must be lifted up? crucified who is this son of man this passage ends in verse 37 sadly with this with this verse though he had done so many signs before them they still did not believe in him in fact as pilate tried jesus we read in mark 15 that the high priest stirred up the crowd This crowd in attendance is described in Matthew as the multitudes and Luke as the people. Clearly, many of those who were singing Hosanna on Palm Sunday were now chanting, Crucify Him, Crucify Him. In fact, Matthew says the multitude all said to him, Let Him be crucified. They cried out all the more, let him be crucified. They would rather have Barabbas, a notorious and violent criminal, be released rather than Jesus. See, they had a conception of Jesus as a worldly king that would benefit their own selfish desires. And when this proved not to be true, they turned on him. Quickly, violently, and completely. But in fact, they weren't the only ones. Even Jesus' disciples got it wrong. They misunderstood him as a worldly king as well. You'll remember that John the Baptist sent two of his disciples to Jesus and asked, are you the coming one? or do we look for another? You'll remember that Peter, after correctly recognizing Jesus in Matthew 16 as the Messiah, Jesus then began to teach about the crucifixion and the resurrection. And Peter, this blows my mind, Peter rebukes Jesus. And Jesus responds to him. Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not, and this is important now, catch this, you are not mindful to the things of God, but to the things of men. And then James and John sent mom to talk to Jesus. Right, you remember this? Their mom goes to Jesus and says, Hey, can my sons... Can they sit next to you in the kingdom on the right and the left hand? And just to be sure we understand that that's not talking about the future kingdom. Jesus deals with this in Luke chapter 19 with the parable of the ten minas. This parable is a parable to teach the disciples to be faithful until he returns. But verse 11 that starts the parable real important listen to this verse because he was near Jerusalem and because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately see they got it wrong too and so we come this morning to the sacrifice of the king second corinthians 5:21 says this for our sake he god made him jesus To be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the concept of atonement. Atonement is the means of reconciliation between God and people. It's actually an English word uh, that we use, and it literally means at one meant. I think it would be a little more original, but uh, it is two estranged parties that are made at one. The Hebrew word for atonement conveys the idea of covering, both in the sense of covering to hide, but also covering in the sense of not charging someone with an offense or in a penalty that is due to them. You see, atonement is the covering of sin to restore our relationship to God. The Hebrew nation sacrificed countless animals as covering for their sin with God. It's covering for their sin under the law. In fact, about this Passover, estimates suggest that a quarter million lambs would be sacrificed in this two-day period of the Passover. And that's just the Passover. So why the need for Jesus? Well, Galatians 3 answers this question for us. Galatians 3 says that it is impossible for sinful man to perfectly fulfill the law. You can't do it. I can't do it. But rather, the purpose of the law is to lead us to Christ. The law is our tutor. And in verse 13 It tells us this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Hebrews 7.18 tells us that the law made nothing perfect. But a better hope is introduced. And what is that better hope? It is Jesus, the Lamb of Atonement. Jesus, he who came to fulfill the law by becoming our unblemished Passover Lamb. And so we come then to the crucifixion, the atonement. One of the seven things, there's a couple of great works out, by the way, on the the seven last sayings of Jesus. really encourage you to go um, grab a copy of that And read it, incredible, one written by Pink. It's just magnificent. But one of the things Jesus said are these words. It is finished. Sin is finished. For those who believe in Jesus, death is finished. And we have life forever with our Savior. In fact, when Jesus said those words... The veil was torn from top to bottom. And Hebrews chapter 10, 19 says, we now have confidence to enter the holy places. You see, that veil separated the holy of holies where God dwelled in the temple. Now that that veil is torn, the death of Christ gives us confidence to enter the holy places through Jesus' blood. And so we come this morning to a close with the response to the king. We'll look at three responses quickly. The Jewish religious and political authority sought to preserve their place. Remember, we started with that, right? They sought to preserve their place, and so they killed Jesus. And we know that this was a theme throughout the New Testament, throughout the Gospels, right? Jesus' birth, Herod tried to kill Jesus. At Nazareth, the synagogue leaders tried to throw him off a cliff. And now they plotted the murder of Jesus. They were super religious. Pastor Shane talked about this. Tom, our incoming interim pastor, talked about this over the last few weeks. Super religious people under the law. I want to share these words with you from the Sermon on the Mount should be chilling to those that are super religious. Jesus said this in Matthew seven, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophecy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Brothers and sisters like them, there are some in the church seek to protect their place in the church. They seek to protect what the church looks like on the inside. They're concerned with how people look. They seek to protect their preferred style of worship and so on. They are religious people. They are in church every Sunday and they check every box. But Jesus came to seek and save the lost. When faced with the lost, are you committed to religion? Or like Jesus, do you have a heart for the lost? And I ask you this morning, do you believe in Jesus? Or are you religious? Because there is very clearly a difference. And then we come to the majority of the Jewish people. And I am absolutely convinced that Scripture teaches that they are guilty of idolatry. They are guilty of creating a Jesus of their own creation rather than the Jesus of Scripture. As we have already seen, they sought a worldly Messiah that would expel the Romans. And at its core, that is idolatry. A.W. Tozer said this, he said, among the sins to which the human heart is prone, hardly any other is more hateful to God than idolatry. For idolatry is at bottom a libel on his character. The idolatrous heart assumes that God is other than he is and substitutes for the true God, one made after its own likeness and that is heresy of the most insidious and deadly kind. Church, we can be as guilty of this today as the Hebrew nation with their golden calf or when they chanted, crucify him. Just give you an example. Paul Young may remember that name. Author of the currently popular book, The Shack, wrote another book, which explained his theology in the shack. That book was called Lies We Believe About God. Let me tell you some things that that Paul Young shares about his theology. In this book, Lies We Believe About God, he teaches that God submits to man and man's religion. He teaches that all humanity is saved regardless of their faith. And he teaches that sending Jesus to the cross for our atonement is child abuse. Author of the shack says that Jesus' death on the cross for the atonement of our sins is child abuse. And he says it is from, and I quote, a very cruel and monstrous God. Better no God at all than this one, he finishes. And brothers and sisters, people all over the church today in this country, proclaim this book. It is idolatry. When we try to conceive of God apart from his revelation that he gave to us in scripture, we are guilty of committing idolatry. Are you committed to the Jesus of the Bible? Or are you committed to the Jesus of your own creation? There was a third response, and we'll finish with this this morning. We need to look at the response of the disciples. God's redeemed who believed. We know that they got a lot wrong. We've already seen that. They were looking for a worldly kingdom. We know that they scattered like sheep at the crucifixion. But let's take a look at Peter as an example of these men. He's a pretty impetuous guy. Uh, You'll remember that Peter walked on water before he fell in. You'll remember that Jesus had to tell him, Get behind me, Satan. In the upper room, he got the foot washing thing all wrong. He participated, no doubt, in the dispute over who was the greatest of the disciples. He fell asleep in the garden. He cut off the high priest's servant's ear. He denied Jesus three times. After the crucifixion, he locked himself in a room with the others out of fear for the Jews. When Jesus came to him and presented himself as alive, risen again, Jesus directed him to a mountain in Galilee. So Peter went fishing. Peter was a train wreck. No doubt he he couldn't forget that Jesus looked right at him after he denied him for the third time. No doubt he was struggling with what many of us would call depression today. But then we look into Acts and we see a very different guy. Right? We look into Acts and we find the Peter of whom Jesus said the rock That he would build his church. In Acts 2, Peter's powerful sermon to the people of Jerusalem brings many to the faith. In Acts 3, Peter goes into the very lion's den and preaches at the temple. In Acts 4, he's arrested and then preaches to the Sanhedrin. John 21 tells us that, that Peter would be crucified. Tells us that he would be martyred. And then church tradition holds that he was crucified. And not only crucified, but crucified upside down. So what happened? Why the change? What happened to this guy? Well, he truly believed. And in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, he was indwelt with the Holy Spirit. So brothers and sisters, what should be our response to the king? our response should be to believe. Our response should be to believe. When we believe, the Holy Spirit indwells us and we are equipped to live our lives in a manner that glorifies God in the way we were created to do. For those of you that are here this morning and you don't know Jesus, you've not received him as your savior, I encourage you to deeply consider the Lamb of God that worked out your atonement once and for all on the cross. I urge you not to be a religious person I urge you to do, as Tom said a few weeks ago, to get lost so that you can become found. I urge you to seek the Savior of the Bible. For those of us that are here as believers, bear fruit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. God, thank you for the week of the passion that we get to celebrate. It must seem so weird to the world that we celebrate the crucifixion of our king. But God, we know that you planned for us to be saved through the atonement of Christ. Father, we thank you for that day that you sent Jesus to the cross to die for our sins. Father, help us this week to be preparing our hearts as next week we come together to celebrate the resurrection. And Father, we pray for those that are unbelievers that we know will be here next week. We ask that even now, that you are speaking life into their hearts. Heavenly Father, Father, thank you so much for all that you've done for us. I pray that these people, that this church, that we would be honoring to you and that you would receive glory from us. God, thank you so much. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.